You know, the writer T.S. Eliot once said that most of the evil in this world is done by people with good intentions. My son, Nate, uh, he was two years old, and uh, we lived in Hungary at the time, and we were, um, you know, we lived in a very narrow house, like it was, it was a decent sized house, it was very narrow, and so what it looked like is that uh, on the first level there was the kitchen, and that was like the only thing on the first level, and then everything else was upstairs, like we had the living room, and the bedrooms were upstairs, and so one morning my wife and I woke up, and while we're still lying in bed, we hear this little voice downstairs, you know, just saying, uh-oh, 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 so what's going on downstairs, right? So we go downstairs, and there's Nate, and he's, you know, he's two years old, and he's got the mop in his hands, and he's just sitting there going, uh-oh, 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 and the refrigerator door's open, and there are eggs all over the floor, and there's milk, and it's kind of this soup of eggs and milk, and he had knocked over the mop bucket, so it's just this, you know, it's like everywhere, it's like under everything, this kind of soup of mop water, mixed with eggs, mixed with milk. And, uh, you know, Nate, he just had the purest of hearts. He had great intentions, but he made a big mess, didn't he? Right? He woke up early and he wanted to do what he's always saw mom do for him, which was go downstairs and, and make breakfast. But in spite of his good intentions, he, he made a big mess. And uh, we just had to, you know, figure out how we're going to move all the furniture and all the cabinets and the oven and everything and soak up this stuff before it starts to go bad and start to smell bad. He had great intentions, but he created a big mess, and it took a long time to clean it up. And I'm sure there are many of you who have had that kind of situation in your life as well. You've done something, you did something with pure intentions, with a good heart, you wanted to do something good, but in spite of your good intentions, what you did created a mess. It created havoc, it created problems, it created strife. Well, you know, we often appeal to our intentions. We often comfort ourselves by our intentions, or we come to other people's uh, defense on the basis of their intentions. We say, oh, she meant well. Oh, his heart was in the right place. He had good intentions. But as T.S. Eliot points out here, sometimes you can have the best of intentions and still do something very wrong. And that's exactly what we see here in our text in 2 Samuel chapter 6. The title of today's message is, The Road Paved with Good Intentions. Here's how we're going to break it down. First, we're going, to, we're going to look at three main sections in this point. Here's your outline for you note takers. Number one, we're going to see when good intentions lead to big problems. Secondly, we're going to see something better than good intentions. And thirdly, we're going to see when good intentions meet criticism. And how do we navigate all these things? So first of all, when good intentions lead to big problems. If you'd read with me, please, 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. David is now king of Israel. Uh, we saw this happen last week. He finally is king of Israel, and he has now united the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which were caught up in this bloody civil war for many years up until this point. So David becomes king. He unites the kingdom once again, and the first thing David does after uniting the kingdom is he established a new capital city, Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem was a very strategic place for several reasons. One of the main reasons it was strategic is because Jerusalem sits right on the border of the historic territories of Benjamin and Judah. 
Now, the reason that's important is because Benjamin and Judah were on opposite sides of the civil war, right? They had been at war up until this point. Also, Saul, the prior king of Israel, was from Benjamin, and David is from Judah. So this is really a strategic place for the purpose of national unity, especially after a civil war. But also, Jerusalem had very strong historical and very strong religious significance for the people of Israel. You know, Jerusalem sits high up in the Judean mountains in a region which was historically known as the land of Moriah. And uh, one of the nicknames of Jerusalem is the city on a hill. And the hill which Jerusalem occupies is called Mount Moriah. In 2 Chronicles, we actually read that when the temple's built, it tells us there that the temple was built in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And the reason that's important is significant is because it was on this mountain, on Mount Moriah, that God tested Abraham and asked him to do something which was absolutely unthinkable. He asked him to sacrifice his son. In Genesis chapter 22, we read this, that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love, to, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. Notice the significance of that language. Take your son, sacrifice your son, your only son, whom you love. Do you notice the significance of that language? After leading them to this place, Mount Moriah, what happened? God provided a substitute. Picture coming together for you? God provided a substitute, a ram caught in the thicket, and that ram was sacrificed, and Isaac's life was spared because that ram was substituted for Isaac's life. It would be on this very same hill, Mount Moriah, Jerusalem, the city of peace. That's what Jerusalem means. The city of peace that God would one day do that very thing that he challenged Abraham to do, that he tested him to do. He would, God would one day sacrifice his own son, his only son, whom he loved, so that he, Jesus Christ, could be a substitute for you, dying in your place so that you might live, so that you might have peace with God. And so this place, which has held this great historical and religious significance for the nation of Israel, David now makes this the capital city. You know, Jerusalem, Yerushalem, you know, that word shalem, shalom, that is the word peace. It's, the name of the city is the city of peace. And you think about that and you can't help but say, you know, what an ironic name for a city like Jerusalem, a city for which for centuries has been the epicenter of crusades and wars and political strife, one of the most volatile places in the entire world, even to this day. How ironic, how strange that this city should be called the city of peace. But the Hebrew word shalom, which is part of the name Jerusalem, it's much more complex. It has much deeper connotations than our English word peace really has. You see, shalom carries with it this idea of rightness, this idea of the way that things were meant to be, the way that things should be. You know, each and every one of us, we live our lives in this tension between the way that things are and the way that things should be. Don't you feel that? Don't you have a sense of that? We all have this sense that there is a way that things should be, a way that's right, even if they aren't that way right now. And that's the idea of shalom. That's what it means. It's the way that things should be, the way they were meant to be. And for the Jews and, and looking at the Bible, 
that way that things were meant to be is found in the Garden of Eden. That's the ideal, right? Where man lives with God in harmony with nature and in relationship with God, together with God. And so this is the hope for Jerusalem. This is the vision for this city, the city of peace, the city of shalom, to be this place on earth where shalom exists, where people dwell together with God and things are the way that God meant them to be. Things are the way they, they're supposed to be. And what a big vision this is that David has for this city. What a lofty vision. But David, this man after God's own heart, that's what he wants to see. He sets the bar high. I want to see a city where shalom exists, where man dwells together with God. He has, in other words, great intentions, great intentions. And so as part of this vision for Jerusalem, David says, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant here to Jerusalem. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, for those of you who aren't quite sure, it was a box which was overladen with gold. Uh, which God had instructed the Israelites to build, and it was part of their sacrificial system of worship. And inside the Ark of the Covenant were placed the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. On top of the Ark were two golden angels, and the tips of the wings of the angels met at the top, and right underneath where the angels' wings met was this place, the lid, which was called the Mercy Seat. And this is the place where the blood of sacrifice would be sprinkled on the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur. And that purpose would be to make atonement for the sins of the people before God. See, the mercy seat, if you will, and it's referred to this many times throughout the scriptures, the mercy seat was the throne of God in Israel. And that is exactly what it represented. That's how it's referred to even here. The Ark of the Covenant was really the most significant, most important symbol of Israel's national identity because it represented God's presence amongst the people. That is what made them who they were. That is what made them unique. That is what set them apart from all the other nations on earth. The presence of God among them, in their lives, in their nation, the throne of God. And David had this vision, right, to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into the center of Israel's national life. Back in the book of 1 Samuel, we saw the ark for the last time. If you remember what happened there, it was in the early parts of 1 Samuel, the ark of the covenant was stolen by the Philistines. And the Israelites got it back, but yet they never brought it back to its rightful place in the tabernacle as the center of their national and religious life. Instead, the ark of the covenant was kept in storage at different people's houses. And at this point, it's been 70 years, 70 years now, that the Ark of the Covenant has just been in storage. And a big part of why that is the case is because for the past 70 years, there has really been a vacuum of spiritual leadership. There's been a void, a lack of spiritual leadership in Israel. And the Word of God and the worship of God have been greatly neglected. And David, here he comes, this man after God's own heart. He begins to lead the nation and he tells the people, guys, it's time for us to get our priorities in order. We need to get back to the heart of who God has called us to be. We need to get back to seeking the Lord and walking with the Lord. You know, I wonder how many of us there are who need to do that same thing in our own lives. Who We need to say, it's time to get the priorities in order. It's time to get back to walking with the Lord and serving the Lord. I need to get God's presence back into the center of my life and in the life of my family. 
You know, if there's been a, a lack of spiritual leadership in your life or in your home, I have to encourage you to step out like David did and say, guys, it's time for us to get God back into the center of our lives. David had good intentions. What we read in verse 3, the next verse, we see that at this time, the Ark of the Covenant was being kept at the house of this guy named Abinadab. Now, can you imagine growing up and, and you just have, you know, the Ark of the Covenant kind of over in the corner and it's covered up by some tarps, you know, that's kind of how his kids grew up. And so David, he goes down to the house of Abinadab and they're going to bring the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. This is history in the making. This is a great day. This is a grand event. He brings with him 30,000 of the choice men of Israel. What that means is that these were soldiers, right? He brings down this, all the soldiers of Israel. They're going to have this huge parade. They're going to escort the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. But you know, here's the thing. I mean, the Ark of the Covenant is a big, heavy box covered in gold, and it's got stone tablets in it. I mean, the thing has got to be heavy. And, and where are they taking it? Well, they're taking it to Jerusalem, which is always uphill, no matter how you go, because it sits on top of a hill. So it's 10 miles away, roughly 10 to 15 miles from where this guy's house is to Jerusalem. So they're going to have to carry this big, heavy box 10 miles up the hill to Jerusalem. It's pretty steep. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun. So they get to thinking, you know, what would be the most efficient way to take this big box up the hill to Jerusalem? And here's what they come up with. Check out verse 3. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. So here's what they decided to do. You know, this is a big deal. This is history in the making. They've got this elaborate per per parade, kind of. It's a big procession. 30,000 soldiers. They've got a marching band. You know, and the, and the two sons of Abinadab, they are there to accompany the ark. It says that they're driving the cart, right? They're driving the, the oxen who are leading the cart. One's in the front and one's in the back. And the names of these guys are Uzzah and Ahio. Now, Ahio's in the front, Uzzah's in behind. And of, and of course, we think, well, you know, the most efficient way to bring the Ark of the Covenant up this long, steep hill to Jerusalem would be to put it on a cart and have some oxen pull it. You know, I don't want to carry that thing that whole way. The problem, though, is that, you see, the Ark of the Covenant was designed to be carried. It was designed to be carried, not just by anybody. It had to be carried by the priests. You see, during the years that Israel had wandered in the wilderness, they had taken the Ark with them everywhere they went. And the Ark of the Covenant was carried on the shoulders of consecrated men, the priests. But now these guys are thinking, you know, that's a big hill, and we don't really want to carry this heavy box up that big hill, so, so why not just be a little bit more efficient about it? Let's put the thing on a cart. We'll just have some oxen. They'll just pull it right up the hill. No problem, right? And they didn't just get any old cart. They got a new cart, a fancy cart. They got the Mercedes of carts. It's polished. It's shiny. It's new. They're not sparing any expense. And the sons of Abinadab, they, they accompany the Ark of the Covenant. Ahio in the front, Uzzah in the back. Do you know what their names mean? Ahio means friendly, and Uzzah means strength. Friendly and strength. What else do you need? So get the picture. They're trying to bring in the presence of God. They're trying to usher in the presence and the glory of God to the people. And they've got the friendly guy out in front shaking hands, patting people on the back. They've got the strong guy in the back being a strong leader. And, and they're trying to do this as efficiently as possible. Sounds like they've got it all, right? 
I mean, what could possibly go wrong with this? They've got all the elements you need for success. Friendliness, strength, efficiency, a big production, great music. The only thing they're missing is a smoke machine and a light show, you know? There's no way that this can fail. This is going to be awesome. Let's find out what happens. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Wow. Things kind of took a turn for the worse. Somewhere along the way, it says that they're on this threshing floor, and you don't know what exactly happened. I mean, maybe there was a rock. Maybe one of the, maybe the floor was slippery, and one of the oxen slipped. Things got off kilter. The Ark of the Covenant starts to slide, you know, and it's about to fall off of this cart and just come crashing to the ground. I mean, this is the Ark of the Covenant, right? I mean, you can't just let this thing fall on the ground. And so to prevent that from happening, Uzzah, the strong man, what does he do? He grabs the Ark with his hands to prevent it from falling on the ground. Seems like a pretty sensible thing to do. I mean, who wouldn't do that if you saw the Ark of the Covenant falling on the ground? We have to say, he had good intentions, didn't he? He's trying to help. But yet, Uzzah, as he reaches out and touches the Ark, he dies. The music stops. The people come rushing around to see what's happened. And this big event has come crashing to an end. You know, it seems kind of strange that this would happen, right? I mean, here is this guy, Uzzah, and he's just trying to help. He's trying to do something good, isn't he? But the thing is, and, and everyone would have known this at that time, touching the Ark of the Covenant was strictly forbidden. Even in Numbers chapter 4, where instructions are given about how the Ark is to be transported, God says there, but don't let anybody touch the holy things lest they die. Speaking specifically of the Ark. So Uzzah's error, it says that he died for his error. What was his error? Here's his error. He disregarded what he knew was the will of God in favor of doing what seemed right in his own eyes in that moment. And as a result, just as God had warned the people, Uzzah died. They had good intentions, didn't they? But yet their good intentions still ended up in a big problem, in a big mess. And so that brings us to our next section, which is this. Something better than good intentions. Something better than good intentions. Please read with me from verse 8. David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Can't you just sense David's frustration? I mean, here he is. He's trying to do something good for the people. He's trying to do what he thinks God wants him to do. He's got good intentions. His heart's in the right place. And then something like this happens. Maybe you've felt that way before. Maybe you've had good intentions. You tried to do something good but yet it ended up becoming a big disaster. And so David, here he is, he's confused, he's frustrated. He's saying, come on, God, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? I just wanted to do a good thing. My heart was in the, pl in the right place. Can't you just cut me some slack on this one? David, in his discouragement, we read that he basically gives up on this dream 
of Jerusalem. He gives up on this dream of taking the ark up to Jerusalem. And he says, you know what? Let's just put it back in storage. And so he finds this guy. His name's Obed-Edom. And um, we read, interestingly, about Obed-Edom in First Chronicles. I believe it's chapter 12. It says that Obed-Edom was from the tribe of the Levites. And so David would have known that, you know, the Levites, those are the guys who are supposed to be in charge. They're, they're responsible for the Ark of the Covenant, for all the holy things related to worship in the tabernacle. So David, you know, calls up Obed-Edom, and you can imagine how this conversation might have gone, right? He says, hey, Obed-Edom, hey, it's me, David. Oh, hey, David, you know, hey, good to hear from you, and uh, hey, congrats on becoming king and all, you know, so what's up? And David says, hey, you know, well, uh, I was just wondering, if maybe we would be able to keep the Ark of the Covenant over at your place for a little bit. And he says, well, you know, sure, David. I mean, you're the king. Anything I can do to help. But, uh, hey, I thought you guys were taking that thing up to Jerusalem with you. Well, yeah, yeah, you know, that was the plan. But uh, so somebody touched it, and God struck him down dead, and so now we're kind of afraid to have it around. So can we keep it at your place? Well... Well, I guess, were you going to say no to the king? So Obed-Edom takes in the Ark of the Covenant, and you got to know that he's just like waiting for something to go wrong, right? He's just looking around. He's probably a bit worried, like, what's going to happen? When is one of my animals just going to drop dead? One of my kids going to, you know, just fall over dead or something? But just the opposite ends up happening. We read that Obed-Edom, as the Ark of the Covenant is in his house, he is exceedingly blessed. Now, we don't know exactly what form that blessing took, but it was obvious to everyone around that Obed-Edom was exceedingly blessed during the time that the Ark of the Covenant was there in his house. And so in verse 12, we read that word of this gets back to David. And David is, you know, at this time, we read that he's just pondering, he's asking this question, where did I mess up? What did I do wrong? How can the Ark of God come to Jerusalem? I, I, I got to figure this out, right? He's pondering this question. Then he hears this news that, hey, you know, the ark's at Obed-Edom's house, and the guy is just super blessed, right? And it's like the light goes on in David's mind. Wait a second. He starts connecting the dots, right? It's like the light goes on. He, everything starts to come together, right? And he says, wait a minute. Obed-Edom is a Levite. Uh, we took the ark of covenant over to his house because I know that God said that the Levites are supposed to be responsible for the ark. So, I wonder, maybe, maybe if I check out what else God's word has to say about the Ark of the Covenant, well, maybe, just maybe, God has already given some instructions for how the Ark is to be handled and transported. I, I need to check that out. And so David goes to the scriptures, and there in the scriptures, what does he see? He says in the book of Exodus, it's clearly written, God says, I never want you to put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart to transport it. I want you to be, I want it to be carried on the shoulders of consecrated men, people who are, whose lives are consecrated to me. It can't just be brought in by anybody. I don't care how friendly they are. I don't care how strong they are. It has to be people who are full of the Spirit of God, people who are consecrated to me, people who are dedicated to my service. You see, here's what David realized. He realized that God's work has to be done God's way. Do you know that? God's work has to be done God's way. Not just, it doesn't just matter what's practical. It's not just about what's expedient. It has to be according to God's word and God's truth. The other thing we learn from this story is this. It's not enough to just have good intentions. Good intentions must be coupled with obedient actions. 
David was frustrated with the Lord because he was trying to do something good. He had good intentions. Uzzah had good intentions. Couldn't God just see that? But the lesson of this story is that good intentions by themselves are not enough. Our good intentions must be coupled with obedient actions. We need both. And so now David realizes where they missed it, right? They were doing a good thing. They just weren't doing it in the, in the right way. So verse 12, we read this. It was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. David is rejoicing because now he knows what to do. And he goes to the house of Obed-Edom and they get the Ark of the Covenant and they take it to Jerusalem. There's still a big production, right? There's still a big parade and a big band and tons of people. The problem wasn't with the production, but this time there are a few things that are different, a few things that are changed. This time there's no fancy cart. Instead, they've got priests carrying the Ark, bearing the Ark on their shoulders. And they take six steps and then they stop And they make sacrifice to the Lord, which speaks of consecration to the Lord. It speaks of the atonement of sins. It speaks of the desire for fellowship with God. You know, this has got to be the least efficient way to do something, right? You take six steps, put the thing down, make some elaborate sacrifices, and then keep going, right? I mean, who? but that's got to be like the least efficient way to do something. But here's the thing. Whoever said it had to be efficient, Right, the first time they had tried to bring the ark to Jerusalem is characterized by three attributes, wasn't it? Efficiency, friendliness, and strength. But the thing that they had failed to do was to stop and ask, are those even the things that God is interested in? Here's the deal. God didn't want their efficiency. God didn't care about efficiency. He cared about dedication. And God didn't care about strength. He cared about humble obedience. And God didn't care about friendliness. He cared about reverence. You see, we live in a culture, and I think about these three attributes, and I have to say, in our culture, these three attributes are pretty much held up as the supreme virtues, right? You don't get any better than this. Efficiency, friendliness, and strength. You got that, you got the whole package, right? The only thing, as we see in our story, is that these are not the attributes that God desires most to see in us, as individuals or as a church. And finally, here's what we see, this third point, and that's this. When good intentions meet criticism. When good intentions meet criticism. Verse 14. David danced before the Lord with all of his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. You know, this time around, David says, I'm going to be part of this. I'm going to be part of this. Not as a king. I want to be part of this as a worshiper. And so he takes off his royal robes, he takes off his crowns, and he goes down there and he's dressed like one of the priests. He wears this linen ephod. This was the uniform of the priests. And he says, I'm going to sing with them. I'm going to dance with them. I'm going to walk with them the whole way. I am a worshiper of the Lord today. I'm not here as king. I'm here as as a child of God, as a worshiper. So he accompanies the ark of God all the way up the mountain, walking with the priests. When you read, you know, that says that David danced before the Lord. You know, don't get this picture of David kind of out there doing kind of like a solo interpretive dance routine on his own, you know, putting on his own one-man dance show for everybody to see. That's really not what was going on here. See, uh, what you need to get a picture of in your mind 
is the kind of dancing that you might see Orthodox Jews or Hasidic Jews doing, maybe like at the Western Wall. You know, when they put their arms around each other, they're singing together, they're swaying, they're dancing, but it's not like he's doing a, his own kind of uh, one-man interpretive dance routine, you know? That, that's how they were celebrating. That's what was going on here. He's dancing. He's among the priests. He's dressed as a priest. He's dancing with all of his might with the Lord along, or before the Lord along with the priests. David didn't want to hold back anything in his expression of worship. You know, sometimes I, I think of that in regard to my own life and in regard to our church. David had an emotional link with God. He had an emotional connection with God. Let me ask you that. Do you have an emotional link in your relationship with God? I believe that it's important that each of us have an emotional link in our relationship with God because you see that Christianity is not purely an intellectual pursuit that's detached from emotion. It's not just a philosophy, right? It's a dynamic relationship with God. And there are, you know, there should be an emotional element to it as such. And it's worth asking yourself, you know, when was the last time that you were so happy in the Lord that you just rejoiced out loud? When was the last time that you were moved to tears in the presence of God? You know, I remember when I first became a Christian, when I gave my life to the Lord as a teenager, I was often just so moved by the message of the gospel. It was just so fresh and so raw in my heart. And that, that idea that my sins had been forgiven, that I'd been given new life, that God loved me, it wasn't just information. It wasn't just facts to memorize. It was powerful. It was real and it moved me emotionally. You know, it's worth asking, do you have an emotional link in your relationship with God? You know, there are two great pitfalls, kind of like, you know, ditches on either side of the road that we don't want to end up in. The one pitfall is in making emotions the center of your relationship with God. That's not healthy, can lead to all kinds of not great stuff. But the other pitfall is having an emotionally detached Christian life. You know, Jesus told us, that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Right? That's every part of your being. But the heart specifically refers to the seat of your emotions, and it is important to have that emotional link in your relationship with God. But check out what happens. David's good intentions fall under criticism. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, verse 16, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Dancing and rejoicing, David's out there, but Michael, his wife, she's watching him. One writer put it poetically this way, she's looking down on him from the window of her superiority, and she despises him in her heart. What's, what's her problem? Well, let's find out. Verse 17. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. David comes home. It's been a long day. And even though you know this guy's got to be completely exhausted after all these sacrifices, after walking 10 miles uphill, 
His heart, though, he's completely physically exhausted, but his heart, you know, is just full of rejoicing. It's full of joy. It's full of blessing. I don't know if you've ever felt that, but it's a great feeling when you're just completely spent. But you've been doing good things. You've been serving the Lord and you've been serving people. And physically, you're just exhausted, but but inside, you're just your heart is full. You're full of joy. You're full of blessing. And David says, I just want to go home. I'm spent, but I want to bring a blessing to my household. So he walks in the door. He says, honey, I'm home. He's looking forward to seeing his wife, sharing his joy with her over what's been happening, bringing her a blessing. And here's what she says. Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his female servants as one of the vulgar fellows shamefully uncovers himself. Do you sense the sarcasm? Do you sense the biting sarcasm? Say, oh, how glorious you were today. Michael, you know, David comes in. He's wanting to bring a blessing to his household. Out comes Michael, and she just immediately cuts him down with this biting, sarcastic remark. You know, you think, poor David, right? He just had such a great day. He made history, rejoicing, so full. He's all charged up, and pow, walks in the door, and the balloon is popped as soon as his wife comes out to talk to him. You know, for you married couples, this is really something to be aware of. It's something to think through. You know, don't be Debbie Downer for your spouse, you know? Like, uh, don't make your spouse love not being at home because you're there, right? Because whenever they walk through the door, they got to prepare themselves before they open that door because there's coming some kind of negative comment, some kind of negative remark. Don't create a culture in your marriage in which the other person doesn't look forward to seeing you, right? It doesn't view you as a safe place or a refuge. You know, it's something that I've learned over the years of being married. You know, it goes both ways, but I have to speak on my side of it. Sometimes, right, for example, Rosemary will go out with the kids, or go out by herself, meet with somebody, do something fun. I'll be at home with the kids, and I'll get worn out. I'll get frustrated with the kids, and she'll come home feeling all refreshed and recharged from being out. And there have been times when I am Debbie Downer, right? I'm, I am Michael to her David, right? But well, I've learned how important it is for me not to steal my wife's joy when she walks in the door like that. But Michael, that's exactly what she does. David walks into the house only to have his good intentions criticized, only to come and be just blasted with this biting remark. You know, she says so sarcastically, Oh, how glorious did the king of Israel make himself today, uncovering yourself shamelessly out there before the ladies and everybody else to see. Now, a lot of people portray the story, you know, you hear the story talked about as, you know, that time when David danced in his underwear before the Lord. Now, that's really not the case. You know, I'm sure there are, Plenty of, uh, plenty of guys who are like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's, everybody in their underwear, you know? That's really not accurate. <laughs> Great. So uh, that, that's, that, is, that is actually what Michael is trying to, that's how she's trying to paint the picture. Oh, he's out there being lewd, right? But that's not what happened. You remember, you know, David, he's not out there in his tidy white. He's not out there in the fruit of the looms or in, even in his boxer briefs, you know. He, he's out there wearing a linen ephod. A linen ephod isn't underwear. That's the uniform of the priests. David was dressed just like all the other priests. In fact, in 1 Chronicles 15, where this same story is told from a little bit different perspective, it says that all the priests were wearing linen ephods. And that is actually what Michael didn't like. She didn't like it that David made himself like a commoner. She didn't like it that he made himself just like everybody else. 
Because what does that say about her? How does that reflect on her? Is she then just like everybody else? She doesn't want to be like everybody else. She's up in her palace looking down on people from her window of superiority with a critical spirit. And read this final statement in verse 23. Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. You know, it's, uh, it's poetic justice, isn't it? Boom. Just getting your attention there. So, for those of you who are dozing off. All right. Uh, but, you know, it's poetic justice, isn't it? Here she is with this critical spirit, and it says that she's barren all the days of her life. Right? That's what happens to the person with a critical spirit. There's a barrenness in your life. There's a barrenness in your soul. But check out David's response. I skipped over that. David says in verse 21, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this. I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you spoke, these are the people that she looked down on, by the way. He said, by them I shall be held in honor. David says, Michael, am I dancing out there? I wasn't doing it for you. I wasn't looking up at the window waiting for a thumbs up from you, you know, like, how'd you like my pirouette? No, he says, I wasn't doing it for you. I wasn't doing it for your approval. I was doing it under the Lord. He was the one I was trying to please with that. And I would encourage you, that has to be the foundation of worship. That has to be the heart with which we worship. We're not trying to please other people. We're not waiting for a thumbs up from them. We're not even doing it for ourselves, for how it makes us feel. It's unto the Lord. It's for him. It's for his pleasure. And people might say what they will. If you're living your life for the Lord, if you're worshiping the Lord, let them criticize you. It's not for them. You're not doing it for them. Do it for the Lord. And again, verse 23, this poetic justice that Michael is barren for the rest of her days. That's what happens if you have a critical spirit, if you have a judgmental spirit, if you're a cynical person, you end up with barrenness in your soul, a lack of joy, a lack of fruitfulness, a lack of life. You know, maybe there's some of you here today who would say that, say, you know what, I hate to admit it, but I have to say I'm probably more like Michael than I am like David. And I see that it's not good, and I see where it leads, and I don't want to be like that, and I don't want to have that barrenness in my soul. I don't want to be that cynical person with a critical spirit. You know what the antidote to a critical spirit is? It's truly understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message of the gospel is that you are more sinful than you, even, than you can even imagine, but yet you are more loved by God than you could ever dare to dream. If you think that you're better than other people, you know, then, then that just shows that you haven't ever really come to understand the gospel. If you really understand the gospel message, if you really become a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what? It will not make you a self-righteous person. Rather, you will become, at the same time, incredibly humble and incredibly confident. You know that? If you understand the gospel, that's what it does. It will make you incredibly humble and incredibly confident. Incredibly humble because you understand your humanity, that you're not better than anybody else. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but incredibly confident because you understand that you're loved and you're accepted and you're desired by the God of the universe. That's what I see in the life of David. There's this incredible humility. He doesn't think himself any better or any different than anybody else, but yet there's this confidence that he's not afraid of what people think of him. He's not crushed by criticism because his identity is secure in who he is before God who loves him. That's the product of really coming to understand 
the gospel. It's the product of coming to know God. My prayer for you as we close is this, that you would truly know the gospel of the grace and the love of God for you. And that the, the truth of the gospel would drop from your head down to your heart. It would destroy that judgmental spirit which leads to barrenness in your soul. And that it would move you emotionally. And that you would be so moved by it that you wouldn't just have good intentions, but that those good intentions would be coupled with obedient actions. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for, for Lord, that the hope that comes from knowing that we are loved, that we are accepted, that our sins have been washed away, that you care for us, that you've taken care of us. Lord, thank you for the gospel. And may it have, may it have its way in us today. May you have your way in us, that we would truly be changed and influenced by it, that it would cause us to become incredibly humble, and yet incredibly confident in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.